0: This is Nicola Torbett coming to you from the historic movement city of Oakland, California. You're listening to The Word is Resistance, a podcast of showing up for racial justice or SURGE, and specifically SURGE Faith and SURGE Action. In this podcast, we explore what our sacred texts have to teach us about how to resist systems of oppression. Although we welcome everyone to listen in, we engage these questions specifically as white people. White people challenging ourselves and other white people to step up, speak out, and stand in solidarity with liberation movements led by people of color. First a little bit about me. I'm a white, queer, working class settler who lives on unceded Ohlone territory in the rapidly gentrifying San Francisco Bay Area. Like a lot of other folks, I'm struggling to understand what it means to live with integrity under these circumstances. I'm happy to be in that conversation with all of you today. If you'd like to read more from me, you can find my blog at thelongingisthecompass.wordpress.com. I'd love to hear your reflections and feedback on this episode. You can comment on our SoundCloud page, the word is resistance, or on the Surge Faith Facebook page. As I'm preparing this podcast, the news is just breaking about the college admissions scandal. Wealthy parents paying gargantuan sums to get their children into elite schools, regardless of their qualifications. Of course, this latest made-for-tabloid scam is just one of many examples of what amounts essentially to educational apartheid in this country, with wealthy white students receiving far superior educations than their poorer and darker-skinned peers. A recent study revealed that school districts serving majority kids of color receive a total of $23 billion less in funding than districts serving predominantly white students. Other studies show that segregation has crept back into our school system, this time through privatization and charter schools. But the admissions scandal in particular caught my eye this week because it is about wealth and the ways that wealthy ancestors lead to wealthy descendants. And this week we have Abraham in our lectionary texts. Abraham, as you no doubt know, was a very wealthy man who longed for descendants to pass his wealth along to. But before we dive in, in other news, this Sunday is also the second Sunday of Lent. For years, Lent has felt to me like a potentially revolutionary time that never quite lives up to its potential. I believe that all of us who take Lent seriously do so because we are longing for something. Deeper connection, intimacy, wholeness, presence, love, and I'm coming to understand that no number of years of giving up chocolate or television for 40 days is going to get us there. I think the the holistic wellness that we long for comes from being in right relationship with each other, with ourselves, with the created world, as well as with God. We long to be right-sized parts of a larger interdependent network of life. That's what we were created for, and deep down I think we know this. But there are so many obstacles to living in this way. It's just not possible to be fully right-sized when we live inside systems that make some of us larger and some of us smaller, that give some of us larger-than-life influence and power while disenfranchising others of us, that prioritize the thriving of some of us at the expense of others. Some of my friends and I have been wondering for a while, half-joking, but not really, what if we gave up white supremacy for Lent? There is a devotional for that, by the way. It's called Recipicence, and disclaimer, I am one of the editors, along with Vahisha Hassan out of Memphis. You can order it through the Transform Network bookstore if you're interested. So today, I'm coming to this podcast wanting to give up white supremacy for Lent. And to do that in community with all of you. And I want to talk specifically about two systems that bolster white supremacy and that show up in this week's lectionary. Namely, the practice of inheritance and the system of settler colonialism. We'll be focusing on Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 through 18. This week, the lectionary includes the famous story of God's promise to Abram that he would have many descendants and that these descendants would inherit the land to which God had ostensibly led him. Now, this story is huge. It's a really big deal. It's become an object lesson in faithfulness, right? The faith of Abraham. There are whole songs written about this faith. The faith that God reckons to Abram as righteousness. I mean, this is Abraham, spiritual father of the three so-called Abrahamic traditions. Abraham! And all that hullabaloo would be fine, except that the guy who appears in this week's text is kind of a bigot. A whiny bigot. A whiny, ungrateful bigot. Can we just be honest about this? Writer, teacher, and activist Sawatu Crawford says in his piece for this year's recipients devotional that Abram has rich people problems. I mean, the passage opens with him complaining to God that he has no one to leave his considerable fortune to, and he might have to leave it to a slave born in my house, as if that would be the worst thing imaginable. And yes, you heard that right, even though no one talks about it. Abraham, father of our faith, was a slaveholder. Now, I know that slavery was a common practice at that time, that everyone was doing it, that Abram was a product of his times, as were a whole lot of our own white ancestors in this country, right? I also know that primogeniture, the legal passage of an estate to the eldest so-called legitimate child, primogeniture was so deeply ingrained in this culture as to be assumed, just as the practice of family inheritance is so deeply ingrained in our own culture as to be assumed. Abram has every reason to believe that he should not have to leave his inheritance to someone he had enslaved, just as many people don't think twice about leaving their estates today to their children, no matter how that fortune was acquired. But I don't think... That means we don't have to reckon with these practices and their effects, the legacy that they have left to us, if you will. Studies suggest that the passing down of wealth within families, in other words, the practice of inheritance, is the single greatest driver of the gigantic wealth gap between white and black families in this country. The average wealth of a white person is ten times that of a black person according to a 2017 study of black and white families in which at least one parent had a college degree 41% of descendants from white families receive an inheritance as compared to 13% of their counterparts in black families policy analyst mark hulsman elaborates on this study findings like this The average family inheritance to a white college grad can pay off the average undergraduate debt balance and have enough left over for a 20% down payment on a half a million dollar home. Let that sink in for a moment. The average family inheritance to a white college grad can pay off the average undergraduate debt balance and have enough left over for a 20% down payment on a half a million dollar home. That's a huge head start. The effects of this huge head start on families go beyond just the financial, and they far exceed the effects of the income gap, the difference in what, say, a black woman makes as compared to a white woman doing a similar job. That income gap is important, but wealth is actually even more important as an indicator of overall stability. Wealth that is passed down in families. Wealth that is used to secure elite educations for its sons and daughters. Wealth provides security, bestows prestige, and contributes to political power. Plus, it can be used to generate more wealth. Wealth also possesses a psychological element that awards people the feeling of agency or the ability to act. It grants more options and eliminates barriers to achievement. And largely as a result of inheritance, wealth remains dramatically ill-distributed. Despite the fact that much of the wealth originally generated in this country was thanks to the unpaid labor of enslaved Africans, that wealth continues to be passed down within white families. As ta Coates puts it in his well-known reparations article for The Atlantic, The wealth gap puts a number on something we feel but cannot say, that American prosperity was ill-gotten and selective in its distribution. As I mentioned, I live in Oakland, California, and here the effects of wealth disparity are vivid and startling in these days. In what used to be called simply downtown Oakland, but now has been rebranded uptown, Twenty-somethings emerge from newly constructed $7,000-a-month apartments and walk past tent encampments to dine at fine restaurants while their unhoused neighbors dig through scraps dropped off by well-meaning individuals and organizations. If our deep longing for interconnectedness and right-sizedness is real, this must be the opposite of that, and the practice of inheritance has been a huge obstacle to right relationship. When Abram complains that he has no heir and that a slave will inherit his fortune, he hears God saying, This man shall not be your heir. No one but your very own issue shall be your heir. I have to wonder whose God this is. I wonder how the man enslaved by Abram would tell the story. I wonder what God he worships and what that God promises, and to whom. And hey, did you notice that the lectionary leaves out some verses from the story in Genesis 15? It leaves out verses 13 through 16, which say, Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for four hundred years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation that they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. Abram's own people, these longed-for descendants, would have their fortunes reversed and would themselves be taken into slavery, and what's more, the nation that enslaves them will be punished for it, and those slaves will receive recompense, will receive reparations, we could say. So it's interesting, isn't it, that these verses get left out, that they are not part of our inheritance through the lectionary, because this is the word from God that should give Abram pause regarding the disinheritance of the person born into slavery within his own home, but it gets left out. What we do get in the lectionary selection, of course, is the promise that Abram's descendants will be given the land to which Abram has been led, a land that is not their own, but belongs to another people, the Canaanites. And we know how this has been used. We might have even read some of those early sermons preached in this promised land, this one that we live in, in which Native Americans are identified as neo-Canaanites to be vanquished. We may know how this scripture colluded with the doctrine of discovery, which granted European Christians the right to any land that wasn't ruled by other Christians, and the right to enslave or slaughter any inhabitants that refused to convert to Christianity. We may know some of the violence done by this narrative, including the forced removal of Native American children from their families to attend harsh and often abusive Christian boarding schools. We may even recognize how the theft of land and culture from Native Americans has dovetailed with the theft of labor and culture from enslaved Africans. We may recognize that the theft of land also contributes to the gigantic wealth gap in this country. We may know it, but we don't talk about it nearly enough. These are the legacies left to us by our much vaunted spiritual ancestor, Abraham, with origins in this week's lectionary. Now, at this point, I want to make a confession, in case it's helpful to any of you. I don't usually like the episodes of this podcast that focus on the ways Scripture is problematic and violent and unjust. I'd so much rather hear a word of encouragement for our resistance movements— or a new interpretation of that old story that somehow redeems a problematic text. So if you're feeling that way right now, you're not alone. Even now, I want to reach for some alternative interpretation that somehow lets this scripture off the hook. I want to reach for Norman Gottwald, for example, and his exciting thesis suggesting that the original Israelites were not principally an invading force that conquered the Canaanites, as the biblical narrative suggests, but instead a coalition made up mostly of Canaanite peasants who rose up against the hierarchical and exploitative Canaanite elite, possibly aided by a smaller group of others fleeing slavery in Egypt, that these were indigenous people joining with freed slaves to resist oppression from a hierarchical system that was exploiting them. That's a story that I can get into. How much I'd rather tell that story. Or I want to point you to John Bergen's excellent biblical history lesson in last week's episode of this podcast, in which he details how this narrative was crafted to serve the needs of returning exiles who wanted to claim a right to the land from which they had been removed. I want to say, no. See, these people who use texts like this to justify genocide and slavery, they just didn't understand. They had the wrong interpretation. They didn't have all the information. It's not the text. It's what they did with it. I want to do this, because looking head on, at the ugly underside of our foundational texts is unsettling to me. And yes, I use that word unsettling advisedly. Facing the violence of these scriptures makes me uncomfortable. It makes me feel like the ground is being pulled out from under my feet. I think deep down, I am afraid that if I seriously engage this work of confronting the oppressive passages in scripture, I will lose the faith that sustains me, that the ground underneath me will vanish, that I will be unsettled. I'm afraid. And maybe this fear is the same fear that grips white people who resist conversations about racism and white supremacy. Maybe, just like me, they are afraid of losing the ways that they have made sense of the world, whether that is through American imperial Christianity, or the secular civic religion of a glorious American history and a righteous American identity, or the personal religion of being fundamentally personally blameless in the world, or even the purely material faith in our family's wealth to keep us secure. Maybe they are afraid the way I'm afraid. Maybe we are all a little or a lot afraid of having the ground pulled out from underneath us. So the question that comes to me as I reflect on this is what would it mean to embrace groundlessness? To allow the rug to be pulled out from under our certainties about ourselves and the world and our place in it, Can you imagine it? Because the land under our feet really is not our own. We do not have ground to stand on. There is something about this acknowledgement, something about this process of dropping into groundlessness. It's terrifying and humbling and freeing. If I let myself go there, if I really allow it, I find myself, honestly, falling back into the arms of a loving God. A presence that I actually know to be there, no matter how distorted the image of God is in Scripture. My soul is certain of it. That can't be taken away from me. But this kind of certainty is not a certainty that wants to do harm or accept promises that take something away from someone else. All of that would be anathema to it, It's so much more gentle than that. I'm kind of stumbling around here, trying to put words to something that defies explanation. But it's important because it's the kind of faith I think we're going to need if we are going to make the changes we need to make in order to redress the harm. Because friends, we're going to have to talk about reparations. Reparations to the descendants of enslaved people, and reparations to the indigenous people of this land. My friend Cecilia Lucas, a white movement activist and visionary here in the Bay Area, has introduced me to the notion of inheritance as reparations. A few years back, she lost her mother, and in the process, received a modest inheritance. And what she did with it is so inspiring to me. She convened a multiracial group of people she trusted, and I was honored to be in that number, and invited us to help her decide how to give away that inheritance to organizations and individuals as reparations. I'm going to link to an article by Cecilia in the transcript. I think you'll find it really provocative. I'm also inspired by those who are advocating for a 100% tax on estates above a certain amount, effectively abolishing large inheritances. Of course, there would need to be a reparations fund set up to receive those taxes and careful oversight by impacted communities to make sure that that funding was used to redress the harm that has been done. In the absence of such a large-scale policy change, we can take small steps toward reparations now. Some of that is happening already. There's what my friend Cecilia did with her inheritance. And maybe you heard that the Jesuits are giving back 525 acres to the Rosebud Sioux tribe in what is now called South Dakota. Some of us have been thinking about giving as much as we can to GoFundMe drives that support African Americans as a kind of interpersonal reparations. None of this is enough. Nowhere near. It barely makes a dent, but it is a move in the right direction, I think. Reparations are the only possible way to achieve the right relationship that we long for, during Lent and all the time. They are the only way we have to redeem our ancestors, genealogical and spiritual. Reparations are beyond the material. They are spiritual. Tanahisi Coates writes about them like this. And so we must imagine a new country. Reparations, by which I mean the full acceptance of our collective biography and its consequences, is the price we must pay to see ourselves squarely. The recovering alcoholic may well have to live with his illness for the rest of his life, but at least he is not living a drunken lie. Reparations beckons us to reject the intoxication of hubris and see America as it is, the work of fallible humans. What is needed is an airing of family secrets, a settling with old ghosts. What is needed is a healing of the American psyche and the banishment of white guilt. What I'm talking about is more than recompense for fa- for past injustices, more than a handout, a payoff, hush money, or a reluctant bribe. What I'm talking about is a national reckoning that would lead to spiritual renewal. Spiritual renewal. Those are the words of Ta-Nehisi Coates. Abram could not imagine leaving his fortune to someone born into slavery in his own home. But we can imagine it for him. He did not see anything wrong with bearing descendants who would take over someone else's land. But we can confront him about it in love. I'm intrigued by the idea that we can heal our ancestors— by taking steps toward healing ourselves. Maybe we can pay something forward that will actually redeem our problematic, limited, fallible ancestors with our fallible, limited lives. May we become the ancestors that our descendants need, that they might live into the right relationships that we long for. Amen. Amen. So, you're probably not surprised. This week, I want to invite us all to think about reparations. One way to get started is to get honest about where your family's wealth comes from. I really recommend doing this in community for both support and accountability. Gather some friends together and ask yourselves, what do you know about how your ancestors survived when they came to this country? How did they make money? and who was harmed by that arrangement? Were they able to purchase land, and whose land was that? Whose labor were they able to capitalize on? Have you received an inheritance? How about other forms of help from your parents or forebears? Help with college expenses or a down payment on a home? Where has that money been invested, and who was harmed by those investments? Was it invested or is it invested in banks that support oil pipelines or private prisons or detention centers? Where does your money come from? Where is it making money? And what might it look like to make reparations? How could you do this in a conscious way that also redeems and heals your ancestors? I also want to think together about how we can continue to raise the issue of reparations in the public discourse. Can we talk about it in our churches? What would it mean for your church to make reparations, especially if it is benefited from an endowment, which is essentially inheritance on the institutional scale? Can we write letters to the editor of local papers, maybe in response to articles about the new tax bill? and probably there will be many of those articles coming out around April 15th. Can we call into radio talk shows about taxes on that April 15th deadline? These are some ways that we can help kindle a national conversation that is long overdue and deeply connected to our dream of a loving and just country. Finally this week, I want to lift up the promise to protect which is a way that we can show up as good relatives alongside Native American water and land protectors as efforts ramp up to build the Keystone XL Pipeline. That's expected to happen this spring. You can find out more by going to nokxlpromise.org. That's nokxlpromise.org. Thank you for joining me today. Let us know how your actions are going and how we're doing by commenting on our SoundCloud or Facebook pages. We value your input and ideas, and we especially appreciate feedback from and accountability to listeners of color. You can find out more about Surge at showingupforracialjustice.org and our podcast lives at SoundCloud. Search on The Word is Resistance. Transcripts are available on our website which include references, credits, and copyright information. The music you hear is a live recording of a song gifted to the freedom movement by Dr. Vincent Harding. We are building up a new world. The group you hear singing is No Enemies, a multiracial group of activists and musicians in Denver, Colorado, who come together for movement choir practice to bring singing back into direct actions and other movement spaces. This particular choir practice is from December 2014, and is being led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We are deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use this song for our podcast. Our sound editor this week is Maxwell Pearl. Thanks so much, Max. As always, blessings to you in all that you do to resist injustice, and in all that you do to build up a new world. Until next time, I'm Nicola Torbett.